Welcome to Just Think, the podcast. The podcast where we don't want to tell you what to think. We just want to encourage you to do it. We are three friends that came from across the political spectrum who were tired of partisan politics and were alarmed at what we saw happening in our country, including the growing political divide. But we found as we challenged ourselves to recognize our own biases, to put them aside, we were absolutely united in our pursuit for the truth. And that's why we started this podcast to share the conversations we were having around that pursuit and to invite you into our conversation. To encourage you to feel free to ask questions. Search for the answers yourself to say what you think. That's right, because as we like to say, diversity of thought, ideas, and beliefs are welcome here. Asshats are not. (laughs) (laughs) All are welcome as long as you just think. Just Think, the podcast. This is Holly. And Amy. And Kristen. And today we have three special guests, which is frankly what we need to dive into a topic that honestly, Kristen, Amy, and I know very little about, which is one reason that we wanted to have our guests on today. We're going to be talking about the power and the possibilities of nuclear energy. Now, if you just heard nuclear energy and you are concerned that this conversation is going to be dull, boring, or go over your head, listen to me. We have got to start getting, if you're not already, involved and engaged in conversations around energy sources. Why? Well, CNN told us uh, uh, undercover, (laughs) a Project Veritas expose said that the next crisis will be climate change. But that is what the media wants to focus on is climate change. Now, we have yet to do a podcast on climate change, mostly because we haven't had the experts yet that we want to bring on to have a fair and scientific conversation around it. There's so much politics and activism around the topic that what we want to do today is bring you experts who know about nuclear energy and they can help us understand how it works, what the risk benefit assessment of it is, and what it can even mean to our own economies. Because one of the things we've seen, right, with the regulation of the um, environmental movement is that there are costs involved and those things have to be looked at as well. So without further ado, this conversation might look a little different because Chris and Amy and I don't know much about the topic. We've asked these three gentlemen to come on today and share bits and pieces of their area of expertise so that we, the listener, can be informed. We want to also point out that we just discovered recently that Oliver Stone has a documentary coming out on this very topic. And we are excited to talk to some actual experts on it before the documentary even comes out and before we're going to be watching it. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that even more in the coming weeks and months and years, as certainly this is a high topic of conversation, right? Okay, so what we're going to do is each of us will introduce a guest, and then we will turn it over to them to give us a little education and insight. And to kick us off today, I'm going to turn it over to Amy to introduce our first guest. So Amy, take it away. All right. Well, I have the honor of introducing Steve Nesbitt, and he is going to kick off our conversation today with an overview of nuclear energy, 
and how it can be a viable solution for our current energy concerns. So really quickly, just gonna give a quick bio. It's a, it's a good one. He spent more than 40 years in the nuclear power industry, first with a major uh, nuclear utility and then with his own consulting company. And he is the immediate past president of the American Nuclear Society, the Association for Nuclear Professionals in the US and around the world. So safe to say, um, I, I deem you an expert. So with that, I'll let you, I'll let you dive in. Thanks very much, Amy. I'm glad to be here today to speak about my favorite subject, nuclear energy, and I'll provide a short overview of the technology and how it can be a viable solution for current energy and environmental challenges. So to do so, I'm gonna answer four important questions about nuclear energy. To start with, what is nuclear energy or nuclear power as it's sometimes called? Well. With nuclear power, we use a controlled chain reaction of uranium and other heavy atoms in a reactor core to produce large quantities of energy in a relatively small space. This energy heats up water, which generates steam, which goes through a turbine generator to produce large amounts of electricity. A typical plant will, will make about 1,000 megawatts electric, which is uh, um, enough to power a city like Charlotte, North Carolina. So the second question, how important is nuclear power today? So going back in history, the first commercial nuclear power plant began operation in 1957. That was so far ago that it was actually even before I was born. Uh, the oldest nuclear power plant currently operating in the US began generating electricity in 1969. Well, I was alive then. Uh, by the late 1980s, more than 100 nuclear power plants were operating in the US, producing about 20% of the country's electricity. Now, electricity production has grown significantly since then, but the nuclear share of electricity production has stayed around 20%. But that's an important 20% because it represents about half of the nation's clean electricity, where I define clean electricity as producing insignificant airborne emissions, including things like greenhouse gases. So my third question today is, what's special about nuclear energy? Because we just mentioned, it's a way of generating uh, energy and electricity, but there's other ways of doing it. So nuclear power has several important advantages. First, it's clean, very low greenhouse gas emissions, and these are on par with renewable energy sources. Second, it's always on. You can produce energy when you need it, even if the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. And we'll come back to this point in a minute. Third, it's secure. I think we all recognize that the Ukraine war has highlighted the need to have a secure supply of energy. For nuclear power plants, you ship fuel to them only once every one and a half to two years. So you're not continuously or nearly continuously shipping fuel like you are for, for fossil fuel, gas, and, and, and coal. And there's ample supplies of uranium worldwide. And this includes in the US itself and in friendly nations like Canada and Australia. Now, I have to point out, as we all know, the US has aggressive greenhouse gas reduction goals. Uh, the Biden administration targets for greenhouse gas reduction are a 50% economy-wide reduction in greenhouse gas generation relative to what we did in the year 2005 by 2030, 100% uh, carbon-free electricity generation by 2035, and net zero carbon emissions by 2050. I don't need to tell you that these are very aggressive goals. And 
importantly, there are numerous studies that indicate that deep decarbonization like this can't be done simply by adding solar panels and, and, and windmills. Uh, nuclear energy is going to have to play a key role. The reason for that is that intermittent sources like solar and wind, which are great, uh, unfortunately require backup generation or expensive and, and frankly, by today's technology, impractical amounts of energy storage. So firm, reliable, always on power sources like nuclear power will be needed to complement those renewable energy sources. My last question, um, what's new in the nuclear energy? So we have current reactors that perform very well, but uh, we also have new and innovative reactor designs that offer uh, potential for even further advancements. Uh, for example, we have small modular light water reactors that have very simple designs and passive safety features, so they don't require active things like electric power or something like that. Uh, they, rather than one big reactor, you would get the same amount of power by a number of smaller reactors that would be uh, co-located on the same site. And these could be built in a factory actually and shipped to the site, which should cut down on construction costs and time requirements. Deployments of these types of reactors are expected near the end of the decade. We also have in the pipeline advanced reactors that are uh, significantly different from current reactors. They use different coolants like gas and liquid metal or molten salt instead of water, which is what we use to cool current reactors. These also incorporate passive safety features, so you're not relying on having a source of electrical power. They, they have, uh, some of them have very high operating temperatures. And this is important because decarbonizing the economy is not just decarbonizing electricity but we generate a lot of greenhouse gas emissions through industry, process steam for uh, refining and other applications. Uh, if you have a, like an XC100 gas cooled reactor can produce steam at high temperatures of around uh, 1050 Fahrenheit, which compares to about 600 degrees Fahrenheit in current nuclear power plants. So using these kind of reactors, we can replace fossil fuels for industrial applications. So uh, that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. I could go on a lot longer, but I know you, you probably got questions. I just want to close by noting that there is growing support for nuclear energy among policymakers and among the general population. And that traces back to a growing appreciation for the value of nuclear energy um, when it comes to uh, being a secure energy source and having low greenhouse gas emissions. If you look at what's happened in California recently, back in 2016, the state said, we're going to shut down our last nuclear power plant at Diablo Canyon. Well, last year, the state reversed its course and said, we need this plant to continue operating past 2024 and 2025 as scheduled shutdown dates because we need the clean energy that it produces. Also, legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act has essentially leveled the playing field among clean energy sources so that nuclear and other clean sources can get the same kind of incentives that heretofore have been reserved for solar energy and wind energy. Um, there's bipartisan support for nuclear power on Capitol Hill. And we know that in today's day and age, whenever you can get bipartisan support for anything, that's an accomplishment, right? So, um, and finally, as far as the public is concerned, we see public surveys indicate growing majorities 
that favor significant and expanded roles for nuclear power as part of our clean energy future. So I'll wrap it up with that and, and turn it back over. Well, I, Steve, I do have questions, but I also know that uh, the next Steve that I'm getting ready to introduce might answer a couple of them. And to your point, after even just getting to talk with Steve privately about nuclear energy, learning from him some of the things that you addressed, you know, I know for me personally, I became more intrigued and interested in that as a viable resource because as I had mentioned, you know, being a child of the 80s and going up with Chernobyl and, and then we know what happened in Japan and was it 2011, um, Three Mile Island in New York, you know, those, those headlines I think are what scare people a lot of times about nuclear energy because they just know nothing but those headlines. And that's the challenge. One of the things we like doing the podcast is challenge people to read past headlines and to go really get educated and don't just buy into the fear. And after talking with Steve, I felt far more comfortable. Not that I was like anti-nuclear energy. I just didn't know. I didn't know how safe actually it can be and how clean it actually can be. So um, I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm sure we'll have questions at the end. So I'm probably going to bring you back up here, but we're going to let Steve go next. I want to introduce my friend, Steve Ray, my fellow Wolfpacker. Um, he's just become a buddy of mine. We like to talk about current events and, and what's going on in the world. And uh, I know that Steve is a busy guy in his retirement, but he's been working and advocating for the North Carolina nuclear power industry for over, can't believe it, Steve, 46 years. You're almost up on 50 years, buddy, um, that you've been doing this. He has been recognized by the nuclear power industry um, and his alma mater, NC State, and the great state of North Carolina for all of his advocacy work around nuclear power. And Steve, I know you're going to talk to us about things like reliability and, and um, the environmental footprint and things like that. So take it away. Thank you, Holly. Uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, on your podcast, and uh, I really like the approach uh, that you all take with Just Think, uh, promoting critical thinking by uh, your listeners. And my approach today is I want to look at this from the standpoint of being a, uh, uh, a consumer of electricity. You know, what's, what should we be thinking about as an individual in the future uh, about our energy supply? And we know as a given, as uh, Steve Nesbitt pointed out, that uh, not only here in the US, but worldwide, there is a strong movement to what they call decarbonization. And uh, that, that's referring to the uh, uh, waste gas from combustion. Your car emits it if you have an internal combustion engine. Power plants that run on gas and run on uh, coal. Uh, one of the byproducts of that is um, uh, carbon emissions in the form of gas in the atmosphere. Uh, if you have a chimney and you burn uh, wood. It's uh, another example of how you're releasing uh, carbon into the environment. So, um, so how can uh, a new energy technology fit into that picture? What questions as individuals, as voting citizens, for example, should be thinking about? And the first thing that comes to mind is that we want a technology that is safe to the public 
and for the people that work in it. And uh, this is where I'm going to uh, rely on my lived experience uh, because I have been around the industry uh, for 40 years, um, uh, including working in the industry, actually working in uh, day-to-day in nuclear power plants. And so my lived experience has been a nuclear power plant is the safest place for me to be. <laughs> I've had to be in that situation in a, uh, in a hurricane. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I've worked in there day to day and it's uh, been one of the safest places I could ever be. So that's my personal experience and I wanted to share that. The next thing uh, each of us are going to focus on is, well, can it be price competitive? Is nuclear power going to make my uh, power bills uh, go up dramatically? And um, over the years, uh, nuclear has been price competitive. In our great state, uh, uh, our power supply is up to 50% uh, right now. And it has been competitive with uh, solar and wind. Uh, so uh, that's a, a, a place we want to be and a place we want to continue to uh, uh, strive to meet. Uh, once you get past the price point, then the question becomes, is this a reliable source of power? Can I go to the switch uh, for my light and turn it on over and over again, and it's going to come on because there's power. And um, we call that energy security. That's something you and I can relate to as individuals. We want uh, to feel secure that we will have energy 24 seven, 365 days of the year. And uh, that's a matter of uh, many things from an individual perspective. It's about um, becoming all that I can become as an individual. It can be a matter of um, health and safety. Uh, it can be a matter of hobbies and interests. Um, electricity makes all those things possible. And firm electricity that you can count on uh, uh, is something that's important about a source for power. Uh, in North Carolina in particular, but this applies elsewhere in the world, is can we have a source of electricity that doesn't take up immense amount of land? Um, the reason uh, in here in North Carolina, we actually look at that very hard because we have a very strong agricultural economy. And this is gonna be true for a lot of places around our country and in the world. Um, <clears throat> and so we want to watch carefully how much land that we are redirecting to other uses. And in this context of this discussion, uh, uses to produce electricity. And so one of the things that I have found uh, with uh, nuclear, besides being uh, a 24 seven reliable uh, source of power, it's what um, Steve alluded to in, in uh, other terms, small footprint uh, uh, for making the power. Uh, we call that nuclear a high density power source. That means you can generate a lot of energy in a very small footprint. And as a result, you don't need large amounts of land to produce that uh, level of electricity. 
And so uh, if you have an economy that's built uh, uh, heavily on uh, agriculture, uh, like North Carolina, we want to be wise stewards of our, our land. And uh, nuclear, uh, as I look at it, fits into that picture very well because it has a small footprint. Um, when we go beyond that, the next thing I think about, because I've worked in the industry, and because I can't help but think of uh, Governor Jim Hunt uh, when he served as governor, one of the things he was big on was good paying jobs. And I can tell from firsthand experience that when people work in the nuclear industry, those are good jobs. They are good jobs. They're, they're um, uh, challenging, they're rewarding, and um, uh, they, they pay well. So um, uh, that's something that obviously you're not going to make a, a big decision about nuclear as a, uh, a um, uh, or, uh, power consumer, but as a citizen and a voter, that's something that makes a difference because those jobs, they pay taxes and those taxes come back to the state to do good things for everybody. That's right. And Steve, can I just ask a quick question about that? Please, yeah. Two things I want to point out to the listener. When you talk about land space on, uh, with the nuclear power plants, the reason why, and, and this is something I don't even think I thought about until you and I discussed it, wind and solar take a lot of land space. So when you hear the arguments in the, in the, in the media um, and in conversation for wind and solar, they are having to buy up big parcels of land to generate enough energy to make a difference. Whereas, can I ask, around how many acres does a nuclear power plant need? And you said that one could, could basically uh, empower Charlotte, North Carolina on its own, right? So how many acres is that? Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to defer to uh, Steve Nesbitt. Let, Steve, do you want to comment on that? Well, Steve, before you, um, oh, I think you're on mute. I was going to say, I, I, I should have prefaced this whole conversation myself with, my dad um, spent his entire career at the Catawba nuclear power plant, um, which is right outside of Charlotte. So <laughs> I guess when I say I have zero knowledge of that, I know that my dad went to work every single day in nuclear power. And so I am very grateful for the industry for that because that was our family's, you know, that's how my family made a living. So Anyway, I don't know if any of y'all are familiar I with didn't the even know that. Yes. You would know that. It's awesome. Okay, Steve, we're I think we're losing Steve a little bit. Steve, your picture looks funny. So it might be there we go. We got him. Okay, Steve. Help tell us, Steve Nesbitt, what is the deal? How much land we need? <laughs> uh, typical, typically a nuclear power plant like I discussed big enough to power, say, Charlotte, North Carolina, would be uh, less than a square mile in terms of a footprint. Um, you know, which would be a square mile is what, 640 acres, I think. So, uh, you know, on the order of 300 acres or so. And these small modular reactors that we're talking about actually for future deployment uh, have even smaller footprints. Um, so uh, I think we're, 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 uh, we're in a situation that, that you, can, you, can, you can produce a lot of power with a, with, a very, uh, with a very small footprint, as Steve put it. Yeah, and I'll just add, you know, I think that there's certainly, we're not, nuclear energy is very much pro all clean energy sources, including wind and including 
solar, and they all have their applications, but it, it needs to be an all of the above type of a strategy. Right. It doesn't have to be all or nothing with anything, right? Yeah. It's about it's about balance. And and I think too, when you mentioned the job, Steve, um, Steve Ray, that's an important piece because we know when they shut down coal mining in West Virginia mm -hmm. towns, it can destroy an entire community. Right? right. And so when you're thinking about power, you've got to think about jobs and you've got to think about economic impact. And so knowing that Amy is a great example, her family, they were provided through a nuclear engine, a nuclear energy job. Um, okay, Steve, sorry, Steve Ray, sorry for interrupting you. Was there anything else you wanted to share before we introduce Lucas? Um, <clears throat> along that, those lines, one of the things that the, I've learned is the nuclear industry is hopeful that there are going to be instances where these smaller modular reactors, 300 megawatts is the term that de defines them, compared to Harris, which is almost a thousand megawatts. Okay, that gives your listeners a point of reference. The, the utility industry is hopeful that there will be favorable situations at the, some of these sites where coal plants have been closed that an SMR is called a small modular reactor, 300 megawatts, can be located there at the site where the coal plant was. <clears throat> That's not a, a promise from what I understand, but it is an earnest, it is an earnest uh, desire by the utilities to be able to locate there because they have the power lines, they have the water sources, they have the land. And where, where that can be done, that means the jobs can come back to where those coal plants um, were closed. So that, that really uh, impressed me about that, that technology. Um, last but not least, uh, I, I see uh, nuclear uh, power in combination with solar and wind as a national security issue as a voter. Uh, we want to be able to supply our own power needs. It's, it's critical for us to be in control of that in my mind and not be reliant on uh, other countries, some of them who don't like us, uh, for uh, our fuel supplies, for our power needs. So I'd like to wrap up with that point and uh, turn it back over to you all. And thank you. Okay, sorry, I was writing that down because I take notes. <laughs> right, well, I mean, that, that makes so much sense. That's like the most common sense thing ever. Yeah. Yeah, nuclear, I mean- to be in our hands, yeah. Yeah, energy independence is important right. for national security. I, I think the vast majority of people are gonna agree on that point. Regardless of how you see the solutions, um, independence in that way is, is vitally important when you have enemies abroad. <laughs> And I mean, okay. and I'm so glad you brought it up because I mean, it makes so much sense. It's not something that I would just, that I just would think about. I was like, duh, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it is, it is very important, but all of this segues right into our uh, last guest, Dr. Lucas Brunn. Um, he's going to talk about nuclear, how nuclear energy is good for our communities in terms of jobs and economies. And uh, Dr. Brunn is the research director at E4 Carolinas, the preeminent energy membership association in the Carolinas with over 150 companies governments, nonprofits, and universities representing every aspect of the energy economy in its membership base. So let's hear from you and tell us how this is going to help our, how it helps our communities and the economy. And you, you're also how, 
a lot of expertise in, in the uh, economy realm anyway, right? <laughs> thank you, Kristen, and thank you for the invitation to talk. And some of what I'll be saying is new. Uh, some of it has been reflected both by Steve Ray and Steve Nesbitt. You know, when we plug in uh, our coffee maker in the morning, uh, we expect our energy to be there and our coffee hot, right? Um, and oftentimes people don't think about where that source of energy comes from when they plug in whatever they plug in, whether it's the alarm clock, whether it's the coffee maker or even their cars. Um, and there's basically four sources of energy, right? There's natural gas that's being used to fire big turbines that turn that energy into, uh, into electricity. There's coal-fired plants that burn coal to produce electricity, run turbines. There's renewables, the solar and wind and hydropower. Hydropower is actually an under-told story uh, in the energy economy. Uh, it does have a large inner, uh, land footprint, um, but it is renewable and it's clean. Um, and then there's nuclear. And nuclear power uh, makes up about 19% of electricity produced in the United States. Renewables makes up about 20%. Uh, natural gas is about 39% and coal-fired is about the, the balance, which is 20%. And so um, these sources have different levels of footprint um, and technology trajectories. On the carbon footprint side, the highest level of carbon emissions comes from fossil fuels, right? And that's, that's from coal, that's from petroleum, that's from natural gas. Um, natural gas has about half of the amount of carbon emissions as coal does. Uh, we still have coal-fired plants in the United States and certainly in North Carolina. Those are being retired, and they're being retired in order to reduce that carbon footprint. Um, nuclear is about 19% of our power generation, about 30% in North Carolina. Um, and the promise of nuclear um, since its start has been to produce electricity at a safe, affordable, reliable way. And that promise has really accelerated um, in terms of spotlight and interest in the political and economic discussion because we need a clean source of energy. And nuclear, as Steve um, Nesbitt mentioned, runs regardless of whether the sun shines or the wind blows. And it allows you to turn on uh, the coffee maker early in the morning when the sun doesn't shine, right? And so it's a really important resource. Um, in addition, there's some technology changes that both Steve's mentioned. Um, the size of the nuclear power plant can get smaller rather than these big plants that we're, we're familiar with, like the Harris plant or the McGuire plant or the Cadaba plant, uh, or even the Brunswick plants uh, down in Wilmington. Uh, the size of them really can be reduced so that you don't have that big land uh, use problem 
that requires siting uh, challenges because just of the amount of land that's needed. Um, the small modular reactors that Steve Nesbitt spoke about really have a promise um, of, of being much smaller and much more able to be produced uh, in, a, in a more affordable fashion uh, than traditional nuclear power plants. And the second part of that is that as Steve Nesbitt talked about, there's a new generation of technologies that's coming on uh, where uh, the, the process of creating nuclear power is no longer kind of your, your grandfather's nuclear power plant. It's, it's a new way of, of producing, particularly cooling the nuclear reactor um, that I think is, is very exciting. Um, and those, I think, are, are promises that um, we are right at the cusp of realizing uh, in terms of the small modular reactors and the generation four reactors. Uh, are, they have become uh, approved, the small modular reactors. There's been a number of, of reactor uh, designs that have been approved uh, recently. Um, and the generation four technologies, the newer technologies, new ways of cooling than just water uh, are, are also um, at in, in the demonstration phase of, of, of the technology. So that's kind of the technology. I wanna talk a little bit about how we get our, our, our electricity and kind of the promise of nuclear power. The second thing I wanted to talk about, and this is something that Steve Ray talked about, is um, the how we get from uh, nuclear power plants to jobs and people uh, and benefits. And part of those benefits derive from the value chain, uh, from everything from you know, the inputs required to produce um, a nuclear power plant, like the construction equipment and materials, all the metals and alloys that are needed, uh, the nuclear fuel that Steve Nesbitt spoke about. Then there's a lot of component producers, a lot of companies that produce uh, valves and pipes and specialty metals that are needed in nuclear power plants um, that are part of our economy. Um, and then there's the large kind of system integrators, nuclear power, nuclear supply uh, vendors, nuclear technology vendors um, that are the companies that we may be familiar with. Um, companies like GE Hitachi or Framatone or General Electric. And then you have the end user, right? You've got the people that actually consume the power that the nuclear reactor produces. You've got the utilities, which has been kind of what we've been talking about so far, but there's a lot of other um, uses for, for nuclear energy. Part of it was something that uh, Steve Ray mentioned, which is kind of industrial heat and power. You can have small reactors that um, instead of uh, burning diesel, uh, or, or other fuel, um, you can use a nuclear reactor to, to, to fuel um, the, the, the processes that a chemical plant, for example, needs or, or a refinery needs. Um, there's transportation applications. Uh, you know, we, we're, we're familiar with the big aircraft carriers, right? Most of those in the United States um, are powered by a nuclear power plant uh, that's on the, on, on the, on the aircraft carrier. Um, but then there's also uh, space applications for, for, for small reactors. And then finally, 
there's um, a number of, of radioisotopes that are being used um, in medical applications and, and other applications uh, where the, the benefits of nuclear power uh, and nuclear energy are being used and harnessed to benefit a whole host of industries, whether it's from agriculture to medicine uh, to industry. Um, and then there's a lot of actors uh, that are in the kind of the, the operations and maintenance um, and then the decommissioning and supply. And so that's kind of the materials supply chain. But then you also have a bunch of engineering construction firms. You have a lot of nonprofits, including the one that I represent, E4 Carolinas, that are part of that industrial ecosystem that all affect how um, nuclear power gets used and applied. So that's kind of my second point is there's a big industrial footprint, a big um, employment footprint that is the result of producing nuclear power plants and other applications for nuclear power. That may be unseen, but for the analysis that I've just completed, uh, I, I feel comfortable saying that the Southeast is the hub for nuclear power companies uh, globally. We are uh, the home of nuclear power in, in the world. Um, and so um, we, we hope to continue that um, with additional uh, nuclear power plants in our region, but we have companies in our area that are supplying nuclear power plants and other uses all around the world. And so that's an exciting story that um, I wanted to make sure um, was talked about. And then finally, I wanted to briefly talk about the economic impact um, of a nuclear power plant. So in each nuclear power plant, you have between five and 800 uh, jobs um, at each nuclear power plant. The analysis that we've just done, uh, you know, uh, estimates that we have just over 10,000 jobs at nuclear power plants, just in the five state regions that includes North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, and Georgia. Um, and that for every billion dollar that you invest in a nuclear power plant, you get uh, about $2 billion back in terms of employment uh, wages, uh, increases in economic activity due to the supply chain effects, uh, and then a number of, of impacts um, as a result of that spending being spent to buy groceries, to, to buy uh, you know, dry cleaning services. And so from an economic impact assessment, it's, it's a really um, good uh, multiplier of, of investment. Um, and so that's what I wanted to chat to talk about, um, those three things. Um, you know, we both how to, uh, uh, how, how the power gets made uh, and the different fuel sources, uh, kind of the, the value chain of, of actors that produce uh, nuclear power, and then the economic impact of a nuclear power plant in our region and the hope for additional nuclear power plants in our region. Well, gentlemen, I first of all, I know somebody, most of our audience has probably learned quite a few things today. Um, Kristen and Amy, I know y'all probably have too, because the first, when when Steve, Ray, and I first went over some of the things they were going to share, it was, it was an eye-opener for me. It's not something that, I mean, I've not been in an educational, uh, I've not been in school for a long time now. So a lot of these things, um, the technologies and how things have evolved, you know, are new to, to most of us, I, I would guess. So, okay, well, let's play the other side of the coin here because we know, as I mentioned, Oliver Stone has a documentary coming out on why nuclear is needed now. 
Um, he's going to, I think in that documentary, supposed to get, supposedly going to make some points about kind of what you guys are saying, why this needs to be looked into and pursued and the benefits of it. So I started reading articles from the other side in, in preparation from, for this conversation um, to understand why would anyone argue against nuclear energy? Um, in full disclosure, I will say the articles that I read, so just to kind of identify my own bias, I thought they were so far to the side of only solar, only wind, nothing else. And I thought that they were also so far on the gloom and doom of the environmental crisis or energy crisis. Uh, for example, oneearth.org has this article on seven reasons why nuclear energy is not the answer to solve climate change. And he says that by the time we could build the next nuclear plant, we'll lose 90 million people will have died from air pollution. Okay, I, I personally read that and think that is not true. Yeah, um, and that's just my gut. And that is because I've seen the propaganda around this. That, that Alarms go off. I'm just going to be full disclosure. Alarms go off when I read stuff like that. But gentlemen, I'd like to ask you, um, and I know you've addressed some of this, but they talk about the, the length of time it takes to prepare and build. Now, as you guys have already mentioned, uh, with, the, with the, Gen, uh, the, the Gen 4 technologies, and I think you said the small modular reactors, that has changed from, as you said, our grandfather's technology with nuclear energy. So when people say it takes too long to build and to get this thing running and to make it happen, would any of you like to respond to that? I bet they I'll all- take a first shot if it's okay. Um, so <laughs> Go uh, it, it's a good point. Um, you know, that that if you look at recent history in the United States, it has taken too long to get a nuclear power plant up and running. And the what I can say in response is that we recognize the problem and we're working to address it. Lucas talked a little bit about it, but going with smaller plants where you can build components and in factories instead of doing them on the uh, on the site itself is one means that we can address those issues. And I'll also point out that uh, if you look around the world and not just at the US, there are plenty of people who are doing a good job of building nuclear power plants on schedule and on budget. Unfortunately, they're not here. Uh, they're primarily in, in countries like China and India. Um, and and it's, it's, it's sad, but we need to learn from their practices as well. So um, I do think that, you know, the direction that the industry is going is going to address some of those problems that we're experiencing. And you know, the, the bottom line is it takes a long time to do anything in the United States due to the fact that we are an advanced industrial country and we have a lot of laws and protections and things like that. So it, it, sure. it's, it's just the way things are. Okay, so when they argue cost, and actually I feel like we just did a, a great job talking about the investment in and then what we get back out of it, right? Which is twice as much as what we're putting in, I think is pretty much what you said, Lucas, in terms of cost. But they're gonna argue that wind and solar, in fact, let me just give you exactly what this gentleman cites. He says the levelized cost of energy for a new nuclear plant um, is 151 dollars um what is it oh my gosh i don't even know what this means mwh what does that mean guys mwh megawatt hour megawatt okay hour. megawatt hour there we go it's been a while um and it says this compares with 43 dollars 
uh, per megawatt hour for onshore wind and $41 um, per megawatt uh, hour for utility scale solar PV from the same source. So they're saying nuclear costs, you know, uh, what, uh, four times as much almost. So what, uh, what would you, what's your response to that? I'll take a first shot again. I, I just want to point out that these levelized costs of electricity are very, uh, very inappropriate means of comparison, comparing costs, because with solar and wind, they only look at the cost of producing electricity when you're producing electricity. It doesn't look at the cost of what about at night when the wind's not blowing and I need electricity, what do I do then? So when you factor in the backup costs of having another whole power plant sitting off here to the side or having a huge bank of batteries waiting, um, mm -hmm. it's not the same story. In fact, you know, the comparisons are more appropriately that, that all of these new low emissions uh, electricity sources are going to cost us money. Uh, we've been We've been spoiled by cheap natural gas, but you know, if you want to keep making greenhouse gases, let's just keep making our electricity with, uh, with, uh, with uh, natural gas, and we'll not worry about what happens to the planet. But the reality is that all of these technologies are going to cost money, but the more that we make, once we get them going, uh, the fuel costs for, electric for electricity from nuclear power are very low. And the more we get built, lower the cost is going to get. There you go. One thing that um, that I somebody brought up to uh, me and Kristen, I think you were there too, that I never would have even thought of or considered is um, the point that what happens, where do the solar panels go when, like, do they ever stop working? And mm -hmm. if you have to dispose eventually of all these humongous solar panels, I mean, if it's environmental impact, mm -hmm. then how does that factor into environmental impact when we have these massive panels that maybe don't work anymore? Where do they go and how does that impact things? Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, there's some other, uh, you're, you're, you're steering towards some hidden costs there uh, that don't get taken into account. Uh, Steve pointed out uh, some of those in terms of they only produce power, but a lot of times when they're figuring those levelized costs, they are not accounting for um, uh, gas uh, combustion uh, plants to back them up. They don't, that gets stuck with the utility. Um, the other thing is uh, you're right about the disposal aspect of uh, solar panels. Uh, the Manhattan uh, Institute uh, did a study on that and they uh, um, reported that by 2040, our country will be trying to find a home for uh, used up uh, solar panels uh, on a volume basis more than we're trying to figure out what to do with the plastic that we make. That's mm -hmm. a pretty substantial statement. And uh, uh, people uh, have uh, with, and I respect them greatly because it's what I think about too, is um, nuclear does create waste. Anytime you make electricity, no matter what the uh, source is, you're going to have waste some way or somehow. Um, the thing that I liked about the nuclear industry is that it's 
it can be uh, very well controlled. But when I looked at the solar power industry, if we were to go 100% solar, I'm looking at, well, uh, some of those solar farms are utilities. Some of them are independent operators. So what, what happens at the end of 20 years, which is the life expectancy of a solar farm, whereas a nuclear plant is 60 years. So you're going to have to replace that solar farm or you're going to tear it down and go find another place to build another one. Uh, so that cost doesn't get figured into it. And another cost that uh, folks don't think about is when you make electricity, uh, what I've learned through my investigation, I, had, I didn't think about this either because your, your panelists here, all of us, we're thinking about the generation station whether it's solar panels or it's turbines or it's nuclear plants and things that make the electricity. But a large part of the cost of electricity is the distribution system. And so when you start putting all these solar panel farms uh, everywhere, you've got to bring high tension power lines to those locations. Uh, so a lot of these uh, solar uh, farms are out in the middle of nowhere. And so they have to find a way to bring high tension power lines. Who's paying for that? That's not in the solar farms cost. That's again being pushed over into the utilities cost, just like it's put over into their cost to provide the backup power. So these are costs that aren't taken into account when they do that levelized study. They just look at the cost of putting panels on the ground and that's it. That makes sense. That makes, well, and you mentioned waste. You mentioned the waste risk. So let's talk about that. Um, mm -hmm. I remember asking Steve, uh, because we uh, have property, we own, own a business actually next, right at Harris Lake. Um, and I love swimming in the water because it's warm. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> it's where the cooling towers, I guess, are. And the water is always a little warmer. And I said, Steve, is it dangerous? Like, am I, should I not get in that water? And he's like, no, <laughs> the water, the water. And we fish in it, you know, like, is it fine? And uh, so, so Steve, quickly, can you just tell us when people argue, one of the things I wrote about, read about was uh, consumed fuel rods from nuclear plants are radio, radioactive waste and they're stored at the same site as the reactor that consumed them, um, but they must be maintained and funded for at least 200,000 years. It says radioactive waste sites must be maintained and funded for at least 200,000 years in most countries far beyond the lifetimes of any nuclear power plant. And the concern is the accumulation, I guess, of these rods. So what do you say to people who worry about the risk of the waste coming from the, these nuclear plants? Well, I'd like Steve to comment, and then I'd also like to pass something along from uh, NC State's research. Okay, Steve? Well, right now, what's being done with uh, spent nuclear fuel, it's relatively small quantity. It's stored safely and securely on site. The plan ultimately is to take the small volume of highly radioactive material and sequester them in the uh, environment in a, a geologic repository deep underground where it's isolated from people and the environment. And uh, although the radioactivity does remain for a long time, most of it decays away right away within the first a uh, few decades, but there is some residual radioactivity. So you sequester it in geologic media for, for thousands of years. Now, other countries are working well to make that happen. Uh, Finland and Sweden and Canada and, 
France are some good examples of that. The US hasn't been as successful in the final leg of that disposal part of the equation, but uh, you know, it's not a uh, it's not a challenge that is a technical in nature. It's a challenge that's political in nature. So, we, in the meantime, uh, what we have done, we have the proven track record. We can continue to store the material safely um, for decades or hundreds of years if necessary until we get the final resting place uh, prepared. Um, can I just jump in real quick, I, Steve? Um, I I heard. Uh, that there are some countries that are reprocessing nuclear waste uh, and, and creating uh, new fuel rods. And the other aspect that um, I wanted to bring to the attention of everybody is that these new generation four plants, if I understand the literature correctly, can use some of that, what we call now spent fuel or nuclear waste, can actually burn that as, as fuel. So Steve, do you wanna talk about that briefly? Yeah, it, it, it's true uh, that that does happen. And uh, uh, France in particular is currently reprocessing as is Russia. Um, and some of the newer plants are designed in fact to be able to recycle material. At the end of the day, you're gonna end up with a relatively small amount of radioactive material that can't be reused or recycled and you need to dispose of it as trash. The good news is the technology exists, it's proven, it's being done elsewhere, and, and we'll get it done in the US, but you know how it is in the US. We always make things harder than it needs to be. Mm. That's like me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, like that Taylor, isn't it Taylor Swift? Hey, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me. <laughs> and if there's not a problem, I'll make one. <laughs> this is basically the United States government. Yes. <laughs> but, I think uh, one, th I think one thing that I wanted to even, I know you want to talk about something with NC State, like the research that y'all have, right, Steve? So I don't want to forget that. But I wanted to just say, you know, before we even hopped on here, we were like, you know, the common ground, the common theme is that we all want to protect the earth. We are, you know, this shouldn't mm -hmm. be a division of, and I love that y'all made the point. It's not all or none. It, it's it's a collaboration. It's a combination. You know, if you want to do solar and wind, you can, but you probably can't do 100%. If you want to do nuclear, you can, but maybe the solar and wind could offset some of the things. So it doesn't have to be yet another cause of name calling, division, hate, no, no. arguments, all this stuff, which is happening so much. It's like, the, like mm -hmm. you said, the CNN, if it bleeds, it leads. That's going to be the next fear and propaganda. So I think it's just so important for people to just make smart decisions. And if your intention is in the right place and that you want to protect our earth, which we all do. I mean, this definitely should be a bipartisan issue. This should not be political. You know, this should be just uh, what can we do for our environment, right? So I wanted to just like throw that out there. Like, why is that? Not yeah. just and, and I'm glad you did. <laughs> it's a very good point. And uh, I think we ought to make it on, on this podcast. And that is what is best for North Carolina as a jurisdiction for its energy uh, portfolio is going to be different than uh, say Texas or um, uh, the Northeast or Canada. For example, if you go up to Canada, solar can only contribute so much because of, of the climate they live in. But then you can swing across the globe to Australia. Australia's got, in the heart of Australia, they've got all kinds of land. It's a great uh, 
a good point uh, of that is uh, that used for mining, but there's plenty of land that they can use for solar. So their mixture of wind and solar and nuclear would look very different than it would here in North Carolina. So um, the goal of organizations like Duke Energy and the North Carolina Utilities Commission is to identify that best blend of wind, solar, gas, and nuclear to give us as users reliable power at the best price that we can get it. So um, each jurisdiction has to look at their individual situation and figure what the optimum combination of those three, uh, uh, four uh, power sources are um, to arrive at the best situation. So your point is very smart, very spot on. And we all need to recognize that. The one answer for North Carolina is not the same carbon uh, uh, de decarbonization answer for Virginia, for New York, it's all different. And, and that's hugely important when you're looking at the federal government making legislation that could impact states the same when each state has a different need, right, Steve? Like it's, it's like mm -hmm. you said, depending on where you are and, and what you're doing will depend on what might work best for you. So I'm glad that you guys mentioned that. Well, I have one last question, unless the girls have anything else or if you gentlemen have anything you want to add. Um, I think that what a lot of people get afraid of, as, as we know, is, and we mentioned the historical meltdowns, so to speak, that have happened, which were, quite frankly, the last one in Japan was caused by a storm, right? In 2011, wasn't that, wasn't that caused by a storm? Okay, so when you're looking at the way that nuclear plants are being built today, um, and people say, what if a plane flies into a cooling tower, or what if a you know, uh, in Brunswick County here near Wilmington, uh, what if a category five hurricane and Steve, I know you were actually in a plant in a hurricane and you spoke to that and you said you felt like you were in the safest place. But yeah. when people have these fears propagated yeah. a lot by news headlines and movies and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, what do you guys say to that when people say, what, a, what about that? Or what about a country's ability to make nuclear bombs when they're mining this uranium or getting this uranium, what if they take it too far? Just could you reassure or just be honest, you know, frankly, about what are the risks around that? Ollie, you said one last question, but I think you asked three in there. I did. I did. Sorry. <laughs> I want you to just make everybody understand, I think, around this whole fear thing. Well, and I might have one more thing after this, too. Okay, okay, <laughs> Maybe we'll have four. Sorry. Let me try to hit a couple of the points you made, Holly. And uh, so, so first of all, with respect to the fear of an accident, I understand the fear of an accident, but the reality is that nuclear power plants are extremely well-designed, robust facilities. Now, the most recent accident that's still in some people's minds is the Fukushima accident. And what happened there was actually there was this huge earthquake that led to a huge tidal wave that was beyond what the capability of the plant was, withstand, was, was designed to withstand. Since then, the US and worldwide plants have gone back and backfitted their, their, their facilities with all sorts of additional safety measures designed to cope with those, uh, those greater than design events, if you will, in the very unlikely event that they should occur. 
But the other thing, and I want to get to the, as Lucas pointed out, these new plants and the new technologies are even more robust inherently. They don't rely on electrical power immediately or soon after an event occurs. And so they're even more uh, uh, suited for withstanding these kind of, uh, of concerns. And I want to talk just real briefly about the concern about diversion of nuclear materials for nuclear weapons use. So the good news. We have a great system set up in the world, administered through the United Nations and the International Atomic Energy Agency to keep track of all the nuclear material that's produced uh, as a result of running a nuclear power plant. And that system has worked very, very well. There has never been a diversion of material from a nuclear power plant in any of the 30 so countries that, that operate them uh, towards weapon uses. Uh, people who, uh, nations that have come up with nuclear weapons have used other means of getting that material. And the fact is that the material that you make in a nuclear power plant is really not very well suited as a nuclear weapon anyway. That's why they're produced in, in special facilities. So I think we have in place the systems and the protections, and we just need to keep operating them as they are, and we can have high confidence that we're not going to have any problems in that area. Steve, let me uh, add on top of that, if I may, and, and just because it's a current topic, I just answered the, these questions for uh, our senators uh, yesterday. And so uh, to Steve's point, um, nuclear power plants that are in existence now, and those are Gen 3, and then the next generation that we want to build, Gen 4, uh, smart modular reactors, they all work off of uh, what you call low enriched uranium U-235. Uh, this is generally an enrichment of uh, currently for the Gen 3, uh, less than 5% or less. That is not suitable material for making weapons. Um, weapon grade uranium, the enrichment of U-235 has to be 90%. And it takes a very expensive and extensive process to try to enrich uh, U-235 up to 90%. It, it's not something that you can just go do anywhere in the world. And so that's another angle to what Steve was talking about, the security measures. Uh, it, it's just not something you can go around and make uh, anywhere. Um, I just would so, like to make an additional point, mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to ask uh, Steve Nesbitt to answer this, which is, how many deaths have we had in the United States related to a nuclear power plant? Well, zero. I mean, exactly. let, let me back that up. So nuclear power plants are industrial facilities, and industrial facilities have accidents at them, but... So there have been workers at nuclear power plants who have died due to an industrial accident, had nothing to do with radiation, radioactivity, or anything like that. But uh, I want to be clear on that point that, you know, we don't live in a completely risk-free society, but from a public health and safety perspective, all sorts of studies have demonstrated that nuclear power is among the safest ways of generating energy. Steve, I'd also like to add something else I told Holly about, and that is um, to supplement the confidence that engineers have in their designs and their equipment. Uh, folks will always speak to the point of human factors, 
And um, we talked, Holly, about Chernobyl. And that was a, a, came about because of a number of engineers said they were going to conduct an experiment. And they had no procedures or governance at the plant that present, prevented those engineers from going out and doing something in the plant that created a catastrophe. Gotcha. Here in the United States, um, we have uh, checks and balances. We have uh, counterbalances. We have peer reviews. We have procedures. Nobody goes out and touches a piece of equipment without a procedure in their hand. And then we have quality assurance people there looking over their shoulder and making sure, A, they've got the current procedure. They're not using an outdated procedure. There's so many checks and balances on personnel. And uh, they even have a rule that engineers like me can't touch any equipment. And I wonder if they've been talking to my wife because she gets nervous when she sees me with a hammer in my hand. <laughs> That's funny. Probably so safe. Probably so. Um, well, I just wanted to bring up one last thing. And this might not even, this is kind of maybe off topic from nuclear energy, but it's a topic of energy, which I know that this is our chance on this podcast to reach our audience about this. And I know something that we've kind of been looking at following or things that we see in the news is the push towards electric vehicles and um, how some places are even trying to say, well, like California, like all vehicles must be electric by a certain date. Um, and, you know, it all sounds great in theory, just like the all solar sounds great in theory. But one thing that we've realized and, and learned is that um, the lithium ion battery or not battery, the lithium ion that the mining process of even getting that is horrific um, for the people who have to unearth that, you know, yes. that element, um, which is awful. And then also, I just spent two weeks on a jury trial with an, a lithium battery, lithium ion battery explosion. So I've learned a whole lot about that. But also, um, when those batteries fail, when it's dead, like these Teslas or whatever, like, where does the power source then come from to start that vehicle up like that we still we can't move away from you know what we have all together it's like the all or nothing thing right so I didn't know if y'all had any thoughts on the whole electric vehicle the lithium-ion thing and just where we're headed well, with that well and then remember your point I, um with the solar panels same with the batteries we also had that discussion one time what right. do you do with those when they're where done? Do the batteries go yeah you know yeah. Um, yeah yeah and the thing with the batteries and the solar panels uh, to uh, to achieve the performance they're getting out of those technologies. Uh, and, and I'm not uh, dissuading at all from them. It's just we need to go into each and every technology, just like we're doing today with nuclear. And we need to look at it critically. We need to see its, its advantages and its disadvantages so that we as a uh, thoughtful people uh, prepare for those. So with solar uh, panels and with batteries, they do have uh, special unique metals uh, to, to make them as efficient as they are, to make them uh, commercially viable now. But those metals are, are not good for human consumption. So they, they have to be disposed of very carefully. Uh, most of the readings I've done suggest they have to go into hazardous waste um, uh, landfills, which is a very expensive disposal. 
And again, that part's not being figured into the levelized cost of, of solar. So they have, uh, every technology's got to dispose of their waste material and waste material generally is not good for uh, the public. So it has to be handled in a thoughtful, controlled manner, which I found from my experience and research the nuclear people do. Which is good to know. Well, and I did read about the, there's a concern about mining uranium with lung cancer risk. I think there was a study that indicated there was a, a higher lung cancer risk because of the radon that's emitted when you're mining the uranium, which is considered a carcinogen. Um, but it's like Amy said, You've got, there's risks, and I, I love that Steve said this, Steve knows, but, you know, we don't live in a risk-free society. We, we, we are not going to live in padded cells and bubbles. Um, that's, that's, that's not the way this works. There's a risk benefit to everything, right? So, um, so we know that there's a risk to, uh, we know the, the mining of the um, lithium batteries. There's lots of concern around that. Um, do you guys want to speak to the, to the concern about mining uranium? For those who are mining it, that there is the lung cancer risk, or are there things put in place? And in, in, like, for example, if we're going to mine that, if we are mining that in the United States, are there things in place to protect those workers? I'm sure there are, right? Yeah, let, let me let me speak to that real quickly. So what you're talking about, it is true that when you have a traditional underground mine where you excavate, there is a buildup of radon gas that's naturally occurring underground. It doesn't matter whether you're mining for uranium or whether you're mining for something else. You're going to have that increased radon gas presence, and that has been linked to increased cancer deaths. People don't mine that way anymore. I mean, you, you use, where appropriate, use protective gear so that you... You, uh, you don't breathe in the radon gas, but more importantly, if you look at, uh, uh, Lucas referred to how it's not your grandfather's nuclear pen, it's not your grandfather's uh, uranium mine anymore either. We use in situ recovery techniques that don't even excavate down anymore. You basically pipe the uranium up. So, um, you know, some of those things that were experienced back in the 40s and the 50s when things were getting underway just really aren't applicable anymore, but uh, right. um, yeah. So that's just, a, yeah, I mean, the good news is uh, we get smarter as a, as a society as we go along and we, we fix our problems and we do things better and cleaner. And I think that's why we live in a, a much cleaner, safer world today than we did back in those days. And I think things are gonna continue in that direction if, as long as we're smart enough, let's think smart, right? You know, as long as we're smart enough to look at the big picture and make decisions based on all the information and all of the pros and all of the cons and not just focus on one little aspect and say, well, this is bad or this is bad. That's right. I was gonna say some people are getting smarter. Not everything. <laughs> some people are regressing, but I'm glad the nuclear <laughs> energy and the nuclear engineers are getting smarter. Yes, <laughs> well, to your point, Steve, and, and that's a premise that we've stood on since we launched our podcast in 2021, which is, Science is not settled. It is some, we always are growing in our knowledge and understanding of the risks, of the benefits, of better ways of doing things. And as long as we can have dis, a discourse with all the ideas on the table, we're not silencing this or that, but we're saying, hey, let's throw it out here and let's all put our minds together and find better ways to be better stewards of the earth, find mm -hmm. better ways to um, you know, produce energy, then we'll find them. 
And uh, that's what we've got to make sure can keep happening. Open discourse, not getting politics and money you know, involved where they're trying to silence other options, but just saying, hey, what really is best for our country? What's really best for the world? Mm -hmm. So with that, guys, thank you so much for giving us an education on nuclear energy and for making it interesting and uh, saying it in a way that, you know, anyone can really follow and understand and go look for yourselves. Um, we're going to, we haven't seen it, so we're going to be watching Oliver Stone's documentary on nuclear energy to see what he has to say about it. But again, thank you for being resources for us and our audience so that they can all learn more. We appreciate you guys for being here. Yes, thank you. It's our you. pleasure. It's our thank pleasure. So <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you so much. All right. We'll see you guys later. Bye, right. y'all. Bye. Bye.